This podcast is an unedited excerpt from a live MCLE webcast. See the episode notes for details about the speakers and links to the program's full video and audio recording. Get access to everything MCLE offers for one low subscription fee with the MCLE Online Pass. Try it for free for a month. Go to www.mcle.org slash online pass. Please note that MCLE's products, services, and communications are offered solely as an aid to developing and maintaining professional competence. The statements in this recording may not apply to your circumstances, and no legal, tax, accounting, or other professional advice is being rendered by MCLE or its speakers. For full terms and conditions, see the MCLE website. Indeed. So as uh, Lori mentioned, um, I am the resident in-house counsel for this panel. So a lot of you know my thoughts are going to be from the vantage point of seeing how these things um, get put into play from a business perspective, um, both from you know learning about these things as folks uh, reach out to in-house counsel, but also just, again, navigating these challenges um, with HR leaders. Um, as they you know, are making decisions that may or may not seemingly um, involve pay equity issues. So I'm gonna pull up my slides. Yes, that worked. All right. Um, this worked a little differently, that's okay, we'll work it. Um, uh, so, you know, why is it important to be proactive about identifying the potential for inequity? And I think a couple of the panelists have already spoke to this issue. Um, you know, I think the first and foremost is that liability in of itself doesn't require intent as Lori went over in her slides. Um, it's enough that a disparity exists and it hasn't been remedied. Um, and, you know, that can lead to, as Andrea just pointed out, extreme penalties. Um, but also the morale issue. And I think, Lori, you mentioned this in terms of how employees feel about um, a lack of communication or a lack of information um, about pay and compensation. Um, and, you know, really, that's what leads to litigation, right? Uh, you know, when you have discord and ineffective pipelines for communication, um, you know, it ultimately leads to disgruntled, you know, folks and they'll seek the necessary remedies that they have to fix those issues. Um, so, you know, a number of, I'll be emphasizing this several times throughout my presentation, but training and policies are so important in this space. Um, and training not only just for your HR leaders, but also your hiring managers and making sure that they understand the ramifications uh, of how compensation and pay conversations can ultimately turn the coin um, one way or the other. Um, and, you know, kind of looking, you know, broadly speaking at, as to where these issues might come from, you know, because intent isn't really the uh, driver for a pay equity claim, uh, it's really important to be mindful that even innocuous business decisions, you know, that we're not really even focusing on, you know, pay equity, can ultimately impact inclusive considerations. And I've listed a few here on the slide, um, but you know, sometimes when I think the business is focused on, okay, well, we need to make a market adjustment um, because of inflation, um, or you know, we're having recruitment challenges for this particular role. Um, you know, it's easy to focus on, you know, making that issue, uh, addressing that issue and resolving it by, you know, either doing that market adjustment 
um, you know, immediately or after some time. But as Lori said, if you're not looking back and seeing how other folks in that same classification or who are doing comparable work um, are, are uh, impacted by that change, then you don't really have a defense if at the end of the day, when you've done that market adjustment, you have folks in that same classification that aren't being paid the same amount. Um, so it is something to be mindful of, even, you know, when, again, you're seemingly just working on, you know, fixing a business, uh, uh, there's a business case for fixing the issue, um, again, from either a recruitment uh, situation or to adjust for the cost of inflation or compression issues um, that may have occurred over time. Um, the other pitfall uh, is that individual salary negotiations, which, again, I think we talked about earlier, um, and, you know, those can occur not only just at the hiring stage, but also during the course of employment. So, you know, Susie employee goes to her manager and says that she's leaving because she can make X, you know, more dollars at another competitor, um, you know, in a hard to fill uh, position or a tight market. Again, there may be a temptation to immediately adjust that compensation to keep that employee, particularly if it's a high performer. Um, however, just like with market adjustments, that may create attention with other colleagues that are in that same classification doing that same work. Um, and so, you know, to the extent that that, you know, competitive compensation doesn't have much of a justification outside of, well, we want to keep this person, you could be in trouble in terms of the pay equity issue. Um, the last kind of, you know, area that's problematic in this regard is managerial discretion. And I think this is a pet peeve, both for in-house counsels, but also defense lawyers, um, because it presents the most risk for inconsistencies, right? You know, when you have managers that, again, either because they feel that this is what they need to do to keep a person or to bring in um, the appropriate staffing, they will, you know, set compensation um, at a rate that's either higher or below, you know, a guideline. And there's no guardrails right on that process um, and you know ultimately again that can create especially when you have lack of communication about how people are getting paid uh, that level of distrust that Lori was talking about amongst your colleagues um, and also exposure under other laws right because if only certain people are getting those deals then you know you not only have a pay equity concern but you also might have some other EEO uh, discrimination issues. So again, um, that managerial discretion area can be problematic and challenging um, and create a whole host of issues, um, not just, you know, in the space of uh, pay equity. So as I mentioned, you know, my structure of my presentation is really going to be talking more about best practices. And I think the first place to stop is um, you know, I'm going to I'm going to stop my screen real quick because these slides are not coming in the way that I want them to. Hold on one second. Let's try this. All right, here we go. This is better. All right, because <laughs> I realize some of the language is getting cut off and I, and I uh, want you folks to be able to see the whole slide. Um, so kind of going back to where I was, uh, best practices, uh, pay transparency policies. So um, you know, I think from the standpoint, again, creating a, uh, a story around how uh, your organization thinks about uh, compensation and, and, and being transparent about that um, a policy, you know, that aligns with the laws that are applicable to your organization is the best place to start. Now, it doesn't address everything because obviously if you have a policy that 
one, no one reads, no one talks about. Uh, it's not actually, it's not all that helpful, but it is a good starting place, again, to be able to anchor conversations and anchor your hiring managers and your HR representatives um, to, again, what, what the ideal standard is. Um, and so when you're thinking about what that policy entails, the baseline of it is it should meet the minimum requirements of the, uh, the laws that are applicable to your organization. Um, and I think as Andrea kind of highlighted, that can be complex, right? Because some states, you know, you only need one person uh, who's, you know, either working in that state or applying from that state to be, you know, held accountable to the pay transparency laws within that jurisdiction. Um, and even in Massachusetts, right? Uh, NEPA applies to any employer um, if you have employees that their primary work uh, place of work is in Massachusetts. Um, so even if you're headquartered, you know, down in Florida, if you have a satellite office um, in Massachusetts, you know, you're going to be looking at, you know, again, the uh, uh, pay transparency and pay equity laws in this, you know, state as well as anywhere else. Um, so, you know, coming up with a policy that is a one size fit all can be a bit of a challenge, um, you know, but it is important to make sure that you're being as broad as possible in terms of the scope of which you're um, addressing issues. And some of the standard provisions to do that, um, I have them here listed on the, the slide and they may be self-explanatory, um, but you know they include a general statement of the organization's commitment uh, to adhering to state and federal laws that are applicable. Um, and you know, really making sure that you know it's clear that from both a standpoint of pay transparency, but also state and federal EEO laws, the organization is committed to adhering to those obligations. Um, also, very important, a statement of non-discrimination and retaliation. Um, considering where a lot of laws like NEPA have non-retaliation provisions, you want to make sure that um, you're you know acknowledging that and making sure that it's clear to uh, your workforce that you uh, you know do view yourself as held accountable to those standards. Um, and I think more importantly, if there are concerns, you include where those concerns should be directed to, right? And this goes back to again, the policy is a starting point. Um, but it should be also a roadmap for how people can communicate and discuss these things. So whether that's HR, whether that's a confidential hotline, that should be explicit um, in that section of your policy in order to make sure that people know how to address concerns uh, readily and effectively. Um, other provisions of that pay transparency policy that you know may be worth including are um, the availability of pay and compensation information. So again, this goes back to what laws are you uh, uh, held accountable for, right? Um, is it that you just have to give that information at the point of uh, application? Is it upon request? And if so, um, where does that request get directed to? And you know, how quick is there? How can quick can they expect an answer? Um, you know, you do want to make sure that you know it is again. Um, Whatever you put in your policy, whether that's you know a, a, a more general statement that you'll provide it as required as law, that whatever uh, systems and logistics that you have underlying that policy are meeting the expectations of the laws that you're um, held accountable to for as an organization. Um, so whether it's spelled out explicitly or not, um, administratively, you're going to want to make sure that you know everything's on the up and up um, in terms of making sure that information is readily available as required. And then last and not least, limitations on disclosure of compensation. Um, so, you know, one of the things that, you know, comes up a lot in the space of in-house is, 
employees talking about their wages and compensation in the workplace. Um, you know, it's not uncommon for that to be uncomfortable for, you know, supervisors and managers, but it's allowed, right? Uh, it is part and parcel of protected activity under, you know, not only pay equity, but again, a whole host of laws, EEOC, NRLB, um, are all, you know, uh, scrutinizing those kinds of actions and, you know, really holding employers to task when um, employees are either asked to directly or implied to refrain from such conversations. So again, policy-wise, it's good to have the ideal state explicitly stated. And, you know, to go along with that, you want to make sure that your managers are fully trained on how to, you know, appropriately address those types of conversations and again, not exacerbate tensions by uh, inadvertently or erroneously telling folks that they can't talk about, um, you know, their pay and compensation. Um, but, you know, there are some limitations that are lawful. Um, so if you have employees like your compensation and benefits employees or folks in TA who generally handle compensation, it is permissible for you to limit their disclosures of that information to the extent that, you know, disclosures um, outside of the bounds of their position, um, you can, you know, incorporate that into your policy. But again, you want to make it very clear um, from a standpoint of colleagues discussing their wages with others, asking their managers about compensation, that that is expressly um, allowed under your policy to avoid any kind of issues um, about, you know, wage disclosures and or other laws. And so again, you know, depending on the nature of scope of your business um, and also your administrative capabilities, that's really going to dictate your policy and also the logistics that underlie that. So, you know, we, Lori asked a question about, you know, what does it mean, you know, for pay equity for a multi-state employer versus, you know, more of a regional or state-based um, organization, um, you know, from a policy standpoint, again, you're going to want to make sure that your policy is broad enough to uh, indicate that you are being, you're in compliance with the laws that are applicable. Um, you know, one thing to think about, again, from a large employer standpoint is what are your administrative capabilities, right? Do you have the ability to have different processes and procedures for your employees in New York versus California? Um, is that feasible or are you going to be relying on, you know, logistics and administration systems that aren't, um, you know, up to par to handle all those different changes? Um, you know, it's not uncommon um, for organizations to just adopt a broad base. We're going to tell everybody their wages because it's easier that way. Um, because of the difficulties it is to have different standards for different folks. Um, so those are definitely things to consider. Um, especially again, when you're a multi-jurisdiction employer, but also whether you have obligations to other arms of federal government like the OFCCP, um, which you know has a lot of guidance around pay compensation analysis um, and those, those corresponding reporting obligations. So again, things to keep in mind as you're developing your policy and also that it's just the starting point that you really do need to um, build upon that by maintaining conversations and training around that. So salary ranges, another best practice, and it really does help in anchoring your hiring managers around consistent compensation project, uh, compensation structures, um, especially to avoid those issues of managerial discretion and setting compensation. Um, you know, I think Andrea mentioned this, you know, part of developing your salary ranges really does require you to, as an organization, 
um, be able to articulate and be on the same page about what your compensation philosophy is um, and what drives your compensation, whether that's these internal considerations such as salaries of similar situated employees, the job duties, requisite skill sets, um, educational requirements, or external considerations. Um, you want to be clear as to how those are being put together. Um, and most importantly, you want to make sure that they're job related, right? So the worst thing that you can do is, you know, look at your salary range and, you know, look at the employees within a particular classification um, and make determinations based off the individuals in that, comp in that classification. So, you know, someone has a PhD um, and so you're going to, you know, set a salary band based off that person's education, but that's not really required for the role in itself. So you really want to make sure that um, your drivers are job related and objective um, and avoid, again, setting salary bands based off individuals who are doing those jobs and, you know, may have, you know, skill sets and or training or requirements that are um, education that are not really directly related to the job duties that that particular role requires. Um, and, you know, you also, it goes without saying, want to avoid the subjectivity um, in setting that criteria. So, you know, uh, compensation drivers around reliability and being a team player, those are very dangerous to the extent that, again, those are hard to put to pen to paper um, and also hard to quantify in terms of, you know, what that means in terms of ultimate um, compensation. So. Um, when you're setting your salary ranges, you want to be mindful of, again, where, what does the job require um, and how, um, how that plays into who's doing the job. You're making sure you're drawing that line very clearly. Um, once your salary ranges are set, that's not the end all be all. Um, you really do want to continually evaluate them. Um, and there's a number of reasons for that. One, you want to make sure that folks are appropriately classified. So, um, you know, you set a salary range, but you have a whole host of employees that are falling outside that salary range, either above or below. That may be a red flag um, for you to either look at how, whether or not folks are properly classified or whether you need to create a new classification or a different salary band. Um, and, you know, really address those outliers um, from a more structural approach rather than just leaving it that way. Um, you also want to look and see uh, proactively whether you have any compression issues, um, which is a different type of equity issue, but still one not uh, still one to be mindful of from the inside business perspective, to the extent that you don't want your managers, you know, being underpaid or too closely played to their subordinates. So, um, or just you know other positions that may be higher skilled that are somehow being paid at lower at the same rates as lower grades. Um, and of course, you know, I think the, the biggest thing is that, again, in this day and age where um, cost of inflation, um, market changes, um, cost of living factors are always in flux, um, it's good to make sure that your salary ranges are uh, in, in, um, competitive with those concerns. So um, being proactive about looking at those on some kind of regular frequency um, makes sense. Um, and as I said before, with other things, with pay transparency, it's important to have a communication plan um, and be able to articulate to your workforce, hiring managers and colleagues alike, how your salary ranges and compensation are determined. Um, and you know, I think Lori mentioned this in her slides, compensation includes a whole host of things, right? Bonuses, merit increase, deferred compensation. Um, you wanna 
uh, think about, and I think it's you know, a really good idea to really consider developing a policy that outlines some of those things um, and makes it clear to colleagues what they can expect and when. Um, so that again, um, some of those concerns about distrustful, distrusting the organization around, you know, well, so-and-so got a higher merit increase than I did. If you don't have any kind of way to articulate why that is, um, and you don't have a starting place for that, it does increase the likelihood that someone will, you know, call you out in either, um, you know, internally or externally in a, a, a adversarial process um, and put you in a place where you have no choice but to explain. Um, so it's good to, you know, be clear um, about how these things are determined and, you know, again, more importantly, um, what employees can expect in terms of how they will themselves be impacted, whether it's, you know, um, even if it's just a matter of saying some of these things are discretionary, like merit increases or bonuses, um, making sure that you have that starting point language in a policy can be um, helpful in terms of, um, helping employees understand, again, what they can expect in the future with their compensation. So salary history, um, another area that I think, again, you wanna be proactive about um, in you know, discussing internally, but also being mindful of your state and federal obligations around this. So several jurisdictions, as we've talked about, you know, have banned the use of salary history in determining compensation. Um, you know, one thing to think about, again, from the internal perspective is what happens if these things get talked about or discussed in an inadvertent manner. Um, so hiring manager and or recruiting manager didn't specifically ask, um, but it came out. Um, you know, best practice is to document and make sure that, you know, how that information was shared, whether it was voluntary or, um, you know, again, inadvertently asked about or, you know, brought up in the context of the interview, that's documented. Um, and we make sure that that information doesn't factor into the decision in terms of determining that candidate's compensation. Um, so, you know, there are areas, there's some wiggle room <laughs> around, you know, salary history um, that, you know, you could ultimately utilize to um, uh, have the discussion, um, including asking about expectations, you know, whether they've received comparable compensation offers. Um, and or deferred compensation or equity from previous employers. You know, I think Andrea is gonna talk a little bit about this later, but the, the thing about these types of questions is you should still approach with care. And, you know, again, training, training, training. Um, you know, you really wanna make sure that if these are things that you wanna include in your onboarding process, whether that's in the interview or in the initial, you know, recruitment calls, that your hiring um, representatives are prepared for the conversations that come, uh, come along with that. Because obviously, if you're asking about salary expectations, that's going to broker more discussion. Um, and that discussion can lead to some, some pitfalls if you're not adequately prepared and not observant of you know, the laws and the limitations of, again, um, having those discussions with candidates and also um, putting them in a place where they feel like they have to respond to certain things. Um, and you know, I would say even if even in jurisdictions where you are allowed to ask about salary history, there's still risks in utilizing that information, right? Um, because you could be perpetuating um, a disparity by relying on that information. Um, if you have a candidate who's coming in from, I think one of us mentioned it, a lower-paid job, and they, you know, use that for their basis of expectation, 
um, acting on that information can just be perpetuating a cycle of disparity within your own organization. So, you know, regardless of whether it's okay or not, you want to be mindful um, and still, you know, observe uh, the risk and go back to your own drivers, right, of what your compensation is based off of, as opposed to really relying on external factors. Um, That's right. I just was going to ask you, what yeah. if what if the hiring manager um, finds out the the what the salary the 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 job applicant's salary was based on public information like right. what if there's publicly available information and so they have the information um what what happens then you know again i think it goes back to one documenting how the information came about um whether or not that's pulling where it came from um and that can be you know and i think laura your point is valid because state employees, their information, their salary information is public. So you can just go and, you know, Google that person's name and find out mm -hmm. immediately what their last salary is. So again, making sure it's clear where that information is uh, coming from, um, whether it's voluntarily or through some research. Um, you know, I would definitely advise, again, from a training perspective for your hiring managers not to go proactively looking for that information, just because, again, it raises the question of what are you basing the compensation on? And again, if you're using past salary history information, um, or you're getting that information, the question is going to be, how did that play into your uh, decision in terms of compensating this employee? So it's definitely, you know, not along the lines of directly asking the, asking the candidate, but it does create, create that issue of, are you using, you know, information that's uh, unlawful to set the compensation? So um, it is, you know, a dangerous territory to be in from that perspective. It's probably fair to say that if you're following Desiree's advice, though, and, and thinking about salary ranges in advance and tailoring it in a certain way, then you're less likely to get yourself in trouble by having that information, whether it comes from you yep. by accident, by having it, you know, come up and falling into it, into a conversation when you're not proactively asking for it or coming across it on a website. If you're able to justify the salary based on the work and what the expectations are, and it just so happens to line up with that pay history. Well, you know, it's not not necessarily something you're taking into consideration anyway. Um, it also might be the case that you see that wage history and you're paying them way more or way yeah. less. But if it's based yeah. on the right reasons and and you know the analysis that Des has set forth, then you're less likely to have the risk there because it really truly will be tailored to the job and what the essential functions are. Um, and I'm just going to quickly, you know, note a slide on pay equity in terms of best practices. And Andrea is going to spend some time talking about the logistics of what that looks like for employers. But, you know, the main things to think about from an in-house and organizational standpoint um, is uh, whether or not you want to do a one-time audit or some level of a reoccurring pay equity assessment. And that can be based on a whole host of things, whether it's evolving market considerations, changing legal landscape, <laughs> you know, as Andrea said, these things change, it seems like every month. Um, so you definitely want to be mindful of whether or not it makes sense to um, uh, look at your pay compensation from a more audit standpoint um, on a regular basis versus just a one-time um, um, deal. Um, you know, I think the other major thing to think about is considering the value of doing an audit at the direction of counsel or outside counsel. Um, you know, I think, Andrew, you said this, you know, sometimes you do these audits and it's like, wait, 
that's the data, oh my. Um, and so having the, the ability to have some of that under attorney-client privilege um, is you know, definitely a, a bonus in some ways. Um, that doesn't always save the day because again, if you have federal contractors, there are some reporting obligations that you, know, you have to do, still have to provide information uh, regardless of whether it was privileged or not, but it does help in terms of having internal conversations around the information that you're in the data that you're seeing. And then post audit, um, you should still be looking at how your pay compensation practices um, are in, uh, in being implemented in the workplace because part of the reason why you might need to do regular audit is because you have the same types of things happening over and over again, whether that's managers going outside the bounds of your salary ranges um, or continually unkind market adjustments. So you definitely want to continue to assess your compensation practices even after you do that audit to avoid any further issues with equity. And I think that's my last slide on this. So I'll turn it back over. Great, thanks so much. Um, before we move to our break, I just wanted to address um, a question uh, that came in from a webcast viewer, um, which is, uh, what is the current status of the paid tra transparency laws that are or bills that are pending in Massachusetts? And um, it's my understanding that um, the pay uh, transparency bills um, that they are have not gotten very far along the process that they were in committee and but that they were scheduled for a hearing this spring. Um, and um, same with the uh, the bill that would require um, more more reporting obligations, like more of a disclosure. Um, and so it, I, I, it's not something that's uh, close as far as I understand to becoming law, uh, but is still kind of in the process and just something to kind of be aware of. Um, and uh, House Docket 1849 and Senate Docket 1191 are the ones that are probably the ones to pay the most attention to, which are the, the ones about disclosing the pay range. Um, and there's also the, the other bill that relates to the reporting obligations. Um, does anyone else have a more updated status about that? Um, so I think what we're gonna do now um, is take our break and and um, if we're just running a few minutes over. So if we could take the break until um, 3.35 and, and start then. Um, that'll give us a little bit of time to stretch our legs and come back on. Okay, so we'll see you all then.